Hey everybody, we're back with another Bald Movies podcast. Uh, we found out that it's going to be tomorrow, the 40th anniversary December of The Godfather 20th. Part Two, 1974 is when mm-hmm. this thing came out. Uh, so we decided we're going to cover both The Godfather, which we've already done, and if you haven't checked that out, uh, go search around on our site for it, or look a uh, little back in the stream for this one. This is the previous episode. Yeah, it's pretty easy to get to. You go to the homepage, hit podcast, bald movies, boom, it's there. Yep. So we did that on Monday, and now we're back for Godfather Part 2. Uh, the This movie, I don't. I, what do you think? I mean, is it... Is it as good as Godfather 1? I, I know we want to talk about this at the end. Well, let's... Yeah. But, but what did you think of this movie kind of by itself? I think this movie is awesome. Um, it's it, it's fun to think about this world in a movie where the Godfather doesn't exist. Like, if you just saw Godfather 2... Okay. You would probably think it's one of the best movies you've ever seen. And... Sure. It is... It's... it's, it's it's much more complex in my opinion it's mm-hmm. much darker uh it's it's equally ma- well made maybe slightly less accessible because it does require quite a bit of of attention from the audience like it's yeah. easy to get lost and it has a lot of michael just showing his process rather than talking about it i mean a couple of crucial points mm-hmm. in the movie he talks about his process um of how he deduces. It's kind of like if you ever wanted to know how the Godfather, you know, in, in the original movie, sus, sussed out that it was Barzini and not Tataglia <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. This is Michael kind of a, a, a movie long investigation on who is trying to fuck him. Yeah. And, pretty much. And how he needs to, to settle that. And he it's, it's just, I, I think it's fascinating. Um, I do too. You know, I, I I've already said so. It's kind of a little bit of a spoiler, but for the longest time, I didn't get the Godfather two. Yeah, yeah. And I was almost offended when people said it was good or as good or even superior to the first Godfather. Mm-hmm. Now my opinion's been changing. The last two or three times I watched this movie, um, I think it helped because the last time before I watched this. Mm-hmm. I watched it just out of the blue. No, usually I watch a Godfather, and then the next day or that evening I'll watch Godfather Two, <laughs> and my opinion just gets okay. reinforced. I just watched Godfather Two um, for no good reason one day, and mm-hmm. for, I found myself really getting involved in and in, in the plot, and it kind of changed my opinion of the movie. What did you think? Uh, so all of the things that you just said are essentially what Francis Ford Coppola thinks of this film as well. Uh, he thinks it is uh, a little bit darker. It is can be hard for some people to follow, but at the same time, it, it's more intricate for a reason. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to talk too much about you know what I think as compared to Godfather One, but I feel like that's the context in which I judge this movie, so it's hard not to. Yeah. Uh, if you can, so if you I'm, I'm going to say a lot of what out. I thought of it for the end. Okay. I think it is a great film on its own. Uh, but I'm going to leave the verdict for the end. Uh-huh. This is going to be a very different podcast from the first one. The first one, you know, I feel like I have all the answers for The Godfather. And I've also done a lot of reading and studying of the history. And I had, like, you know, some some little things I could bring up to, to the attention to the production. 
I don't have a lot of that for Godfather 2. Okay, well, I watched it. And I think we're going to talk a lot more about, like, the concepts and the plot points and play some Mm -hmm. what if and just kind of, like, be more fanboys on this one. Because we are fanboys of the Godfather series. Sure. Uh, I don't don't know about three. I've never seen three. Maybe we'll get to that. I'm very curious. I think. I think we should watch it together and then do an instant take podcast on it. <laughs> okay. Because that's it, how rare is it to find two 30-something dudes that loved the Godfather movies that have never seen Godfather 3? The reason I've never seen Godfather 3 is because I have such respect for the material, and the mm-hmm. universal opinion is it's a terrible affront to the franchise. Yeah. It's not yeah. Return of the Jedi. It's Attack of the Clones. Yeah, and... Coppola talks about that a little bit too. Um, in the in the Godfather Part Two commentary, he's like, uh, "Yeah, I was super resistant to the idea of Godfather Part Three. Hmm. Uh, he he talks a little bit about it in the scene where, uh, you know, they're they're taking Fredo out in the boat yeah. to kill him near the end. I was super concerned. I was I was super surprised to see an opinion that I read in an article from two thousand eight that said Coppola regrets making any sequels i would not be surprised if he regretted making the third one Mm -hmm. but you know when he said i include the second it was an unnecessary movie to make i wish i didn't do it that's shocking to me well it's interesting because i mean the story is so the story is different the story is a continuation certainly of the godfather especially for michael you know i mean in the godfather part one he becomes his father in the godfather part two we see that he's not quite his father um, he is in some ways, but in the end, he loses his family, and that's kind of the crux of this movie. Even though he has so many of the strengths and so many of the weaknesses of yeah. his old man, and that's the kind of brilliant thing about the parallel structure of this movie. Yes, showing genius. them both building up to arguably totally unnecessary assassinations. Sure. <laughs> Do you think that when Paramount said Coppola, Godfather Part Two? They were expecting a longer movie than the first one, <laughs> which is essentially, in some ways, four movies. Like, yeah, you're it's, right. It's it's two movies that are roughly like an hour forty each, but it's also like structured in a way that there are two halves to those two movies. Uh huh. I I imagine that Paramount was like, oh god, what what is this behemoth becoming? Mm-hmm. Uh, before it was all said and done, mm-hmm. but then the the end product is fantastic. I Interesting. like the Godfather one. Once I start watching this movie, I'm so drawn into the world that they're creating mm-hmm. and the characters that I don't realize that three hours and twenty two minutes have gone by at the end of it. Yeah, um, I remember thinking when the intermission first came up, we were watching it the other day. It's like Jesus, we have a whole other movie to watch. <laughs> yeah, the intermission and, is two hours in, and not in a like, oh God, this movie's so long, like Hobbit uh-huh. type of way. It's in a <laughs> totally wow, I can't believe we've gotten this much plot and this much depth. One thing I want to talk about in terms of you know people talking about the golden age of television and how it surpassed the movies. Oh, okay, okay. And it's yeah, let's it's, talk about it's it. It's easy. It's so, like, let's you want to talk about that now? Yeah, let's talk about not? that now. Mm-hmm. It's it's a pretty easy argument to make that Breaking Bad has more depth, complexity, character development, etc. In its what uh, seventy <laughs> hours of television, roughly Some, around there, yeah. Uh, than than most movies have at their two hour running time. Mm-hmm. Godfather Two is a rare exception to where. I feel like in the three and a half hours that you watch it, you you could not pack more character development, 
complexity of plot or themes or art. I would mostly there. agree with you, but then there's the exceptions of like we talked about in The Godfather 1, the transitions, which are a minute and a half long of a guy walking That's what I'm saying. You could cut those out, with, but you would also diminish the the art and the, oh, yeah. the mood. So yes, like yeah. I was just saying, like, it's, it's, really it's the, the maximum density when you try to respect character, story, and art. Yeah, I am so thoroughly impressed by the texture of these films. I mean, you go back to – you can tell the difference just by looking at it of – you know, the, the 1917 sections or the 1958 sections, just by just by looking at it, they do such a great job. And I think it, uh, I think that care is taken on purpose, because yeah. if you go and you look at, you know, just the old section being 99 percent in Italian and subtitled, that lends a feeling to the film, to that portion of the film that I feel like you wouldn't get if they were all just speaking English, right? Sure. I mean, you want to get in there and say, okay, these people are fresh off of a boat from Italy. Sure. They're not speaking English. They're speaking Italian, and it just doesn't feel right if they're not. Yeah. And, and, and helps... that's what he does so well is he takes – I mean, he's a guy who grew up with a father who was part of this whole thing, right? Uh-huh. Like who who did immigrate over and – like he's got a lot of that culture instilled in him, uh-huh. so when he makes his movies, he that really comes through. And I don't think he could make a movie this good without being centrally involved in that sort of thing. And I like how you, you say the um, omnipresent Italian and the subtitling makes the audience identify with the immigrant culture because they're now the outsiders. Sure. You know, imagine yeah. if if you lived in that world where and there weren't no, and weren't any yeah. subtitles. You uh-huh. know, it's like I've. Oh, it's interesting because I watched the commentary and they don't do subtitles on the commentary. So sure. when I'm watching it and Francis Ford Coppola is not talking, uh-huh. and they're all speaking Italian. I mean, granted, I've I've seen it, so I know what's going on, but you right. can kind of still tell. But it's yeah, yeah. so much harder to tell yeah. exactly what's happening. So it's it's interesting how they use that technique to make it number one a more authentic, richer experience, but also a little bit. I think put the audience into that role of the immigrants, sure, surrounded in this culture that they don't understand, and uh, they're kind of feel vulnerable. That's another thought I had making when I'm watching this movie is, you know, it seems like there's a lot of crime and corruption that thrives within these immigrant cultures. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the gangs in New York. It wasn't Italian. It was the, it was in the the the, the, the Irish, right? Um, Gangs in New York, I think so, yeah. And you know, here we talk Italians. Now it's like you t- hear about a lot about the Russian mob and the uh, you know, South American cartels, mm-hmm. and they're entering our our society. It seems, and you're like, why? Why would why would you go to a Godfather than police or to judges or whatnot? But it starts to make sense in these these kind of enclaves mm-hmm. that. You know, when you've got this mafia who gives you if you if you play along with the system, you get nothing but good things. Uh huh. You get you get rugs. You get you get rugs. Uh-huh. And if you go against it, you get uh, violence and 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 arson and death. Yeah. You just everyone just goes along with it, and especially when when you feel like you are being taken advantage of the system, uh, that the police and the judges are not there to serve your interest against the majority. Yeah. Institutions like the mafia seem to make sense. And also institutions like the mafia seem to crumble when those populations become integrated into society. Because now, 
Uh, all of a sudden, these you know three four generations go by. Italian Americans are integrated in society. They got, you know, they are judges and policemen. They don't need the mafia yeah, yeah. anymore, and mm-hmm. they just start losing their stranglehold. So sure. makes sense. I think it's interesting, and it's always I think it's insightful uh, when you think about these things in terms of our current immigration debate. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's fascinating in the last hundred, probably two hundred years of this country, how many cycles of you know xenophobia and racism and and being scared of immigrants it just yeah, keeps repeating I, I feel like that's that's uh the humid comedy is just not learning from our mistakes in the past well i think it's also a testament <laughs> to how deep wired that fear of other is into our oh, tr- our biology yeah. we're we're a tribal species like we want to if we don't have a tribe we want to find and form one and yeah. once we do then fuck everybody else sure and it's I that's kind of like when I I enjoy the wire partially because of its social commentary. There's a um, lot of subtle social commentary about this, you know, crime and family and what it means to belong in society and what it means to be outside of society and whether that's good or bad. One of the things I thought was interesting about Roger Ebert's reviews of The Godfather is he seems very uncomfortable with how much admiration the audience feels towards, especially Vito. Okay, but also yeah. that we're kind of rooting for Michael too in these criminal or and it's like you know he, I, I feel like part of his review kind of negative. I mean, as negative as a three star review of a movie can get. Three stars, huh? He gave three out of not out his is, four is, star. Scale. Is that is that thumbs? That's stars. That's stars. He, <laughs> okay. is, is, he didn't have Siskel there for the extra thumbs. No, no, no. His newspapers point. articles have always been written with a four star. Okay. Uh, review. Right. So there's a three star movie. Really? And he never backs away from that. He never says, he says, you know, when he rewrote his great movies review, he's like, I don't back away from any of that stuff. But hmm. the only thing I've changed is over the decades, I've, I now see Godfather 2 as a companion piece yeah. to The Godfather. So it, by nature, that elevates the material to status of great movies. I see. So it, it's kind of. They they go together um, separately. They're they're not as good as the sum of their parts together. He compared it like gospels in the Bible. Like there's n- not all the gospels are as okay. good. <laughs> are any of them good? But well, I mean, I'm just saying like you know, not all the gospels are as good as the others as far as terms of writing, how much information you uh-huh. get about Jesus. But you can't separate them. But you can't, yeah, you can't say, well, I'm only going to. I think John is the best, and everything else is crap. You have to kind yeah. of consider them roughly as a unit that's kind of where i come from on the godfather 2 i i think like i said earlier it's a continuation of the story uh it's a film that i ultimately don't know that it needed to be made but after having been made i think it was worthy sure of being made because uh, I, I feel like you could have left godfather 1 where it was and said look at this foreboding sense that it gives you at the end as to michael's future and kind of inferred the rest of this stuff, but but seeing it play out on the screen is also entertaining and fun. Some people, uh, Ebert was one of them, but I was reading Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes is great if you want to just see a bunch of historical reviews of movies and how <laughs> people's opinions of it have changed over time. Um I think it's interesting that he his opinion was they should have ditched all the veto stuff from this one and just concentrated on Michael. Oh no! My first initial reaction when I saw Godfather Two was like I really liked the veto stuff. I kept getting annoyed switching back oh. to Michael and not giving because Michael's less likable, less relatable, and less interesting in my 
mind, you know, 10 years ago when I first saw that. Okay. Obviously, I think I've come a little bit around to that. Roger Ebert said that? Yes. I completely disagree. Would you, so do you think? I say these two storylines are inseparable. Okay. And without, without the other one, the, without one, the other doesn't work. And I think those are interchangeable. So the plot of the Vito's rise to power largely came right from Mario Puzo's novel, The Godfather. Yeah. That's all, again, the the novel is the rise of, of the dawn. In the movie, it's it's the fall, the dawn, rise of Michael. Yeah, ninety plus percent of that material came from the book. The Michael stuff was all new. Yeah, so I don't know that they're inseparable, but the way that Coppola has has structured that, it's it's easy to make that argument. Yeah, I mean Coppola in the commentary says that he he when he was making it, he saw that he was making two movies, two mm-hmm. separate movies. Um, and he was cast, location, he everything. Was. Yeah, uh, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino only appear on screen together one time, and it's because of a crossfade that they're doing. Right, they're never in the same location, right. um, which obviously makes sense. Sure, uh, but he said when, once he started looking at it, the movies by themselves were just okay. When he put them together in a certain way, it made them great, in his opinion, and, and I totally agree with that. But I, I feel like that. I think I think it's a juxtaposition of who Michael is and who his father was that really make this film work well. And I feel like you I appreciate Vito more knowing where he came from. I mean, you know, oh, his mother yeah, considered yeah. him dumb and dull-witted. He rarely spoke. <laughs> you take this boy they and you put him sing. you you put him on a boat and he's 9 years old. Yeah. I'm thinking like so that's a year older than my son is. I take my son <laughs> and he speaks not a lick of English. I put him on a boat to America. Uh-huh. And like then 15 years from then he becomes uh uh uh, uh shit, what's the guy's uh, Robert De Niro. Yeah. And makes his way through New York City and gets exposed to I mean there's a lot of funny fun what if questions. Like what if Clemenza was not his next door neighbor? Yeah, I don't know that he gets in that. He gets fired because uh, so so. Does he other, go look for another job? This is actually a broader question of if Vito had been fired, or or when did Vito become the Godfather or choose to become the Godfather? Was it when he first saw Don Fanucci and saw how he was kind of like taking advantage of his fellow immigrants rather than trying to help them? Like he mm-hmm. was that 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 Don was more of a leech. I feel yeah. like uh, Vito was much more of a guardian. Yeah, no, you're right. I, mean, I, he, he I w- would say the same thing about Michael. Uh, he's he's different from Vito in that same way. I feel like Michael uses his family more as like a tool versus Vito, which had like genuine affection for the people around him. But is that the so yeah? Because so they all had similar formable events like Vito's father was murdered at a very young age. So family Michael's yeah. Michael's father was murdered or attempted murdered at not a very young age, but you know, he's still a young man. Mm-hmm. Uh and and those that did a lot to form them, but they turn out yeah. into two different people. Like Michael is paranoid. Yeah. The v- Vito was never paranoid. He was always generous, open hearted, cunning, mm-hmm. careful, but he was never never paranoid that way. No, no. And he... I, I don't know. I can't ever see Vito 
getting in the scenario that Michael is in in this movie. Where his own brother tries to kill him? Yeah. Well, his, and, and his then, brother got murdered after his father, so yeah. No, I, well, I, 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 but you know what I mean. I, their personalities are so different. But um, why? Because... <laughs> it, it, why do you say that? Because Vito would have handled Fredo better? I, I feel like he would have, yeah. Um, Another way to restate that is is Vito didn't have to suffer a fool like Fredo in his inner family. Like, Fredo was his son, so he yeah. could, you know... Uh, it's much easier to deal with a lackwit son than it is a lackwit brother, I guess. Probably, yeah, because you certainly have more authority in their eyes. Uh, but I, I feel like it might be a consequence of the eras in which we see Vito and Michael, because uh, in The Godfather 1, we see Vito in an era in which he already has this extreme amount of power, and it's kind of old hat to him, right? I mean, he's had this for a very long time, but you can tell that he's loved by the community, whereas I don't feel like Michael has any of that kind of respect among people. Like, yeah, they go to him and they ask him for things, but it's not... Like, he just doesn't have the way of dealing with people that his father did, like talking to them and... Do you think it's... Part of this Part of this paranoia is stems from him moving out to Nevada? Uh-huh. Like, New York City was their town, that's where their people True. live. Yeah. Uh, Nevada, they are completely outsiders. Yeah. The politicians don't like them. They learn mm-hmm. to fear and and use them, which we see that brilliantly with the character of uh, Geary. Yeah, that might be it. I mean, he just doesn't have the support of the community like Vito had. Like, like his attempts to go legitimate, mm-hmm. he was always entangled with the, the bad stuff that happened the violence and the crime and the extortion from new york and he had none of the advantages yeah so whereas Vito could be a thug but also generous and open-hearted and in you know community and family are important michael left the family and the community yeah as as a and as a way to protect his family and as a way to elevate his family legitimacy but in doing that that led to the seeds of this family's destruction uh, partially, I, I also feel like Michael just has a slightly different demeanor than his father. He's similar in a lot of ways, but like I can't see Michael schmoozing at a wedding like we see with Vito. You know, it it doesn't feel right when Michael is out there uh, laughing it up with his family and having a good time. Whereas Vito, I feel like he goes out into that wedding, he's just friendly father. You know? Yeah, I mean Frank uh, uh, Patangeli. Uh-huh. I just probably butchered that. Frankie Five Angels sure has to wait till late at night to see Michael, mm-hmm. whereas Vito took care of all the business before he joined and enjoyed his his, his daughter's wedding, and that was at his son's yeah, yeah, um, yeah. you know first communion, I guess confirmation something like that. So I think that's that's you're you're probably right. Vito would never have kept his you know fucking capo of his New York family waiting for that sure. long. And I mean, even the people he disrespect. didn't want to see, like Luca Brazzi, when he comes in, he's like, "He gave him respect." I don't want to see this guy, but let's see him. I'm giving him the respect that yeah. they they deserve for their and loyalty. He's just more, Vito feels more personable to me. Michael feels more closed off and unwilling to engage with people. More reptilian on a human level. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. That that's what I think about the differences between the personalities there and how they affect the story. Uh, uh, and, and ultimately, I mean. Michael does lose his family, whereas Vito never lost that. Vito lost when Vito loses his family, it's to death. When Michael loses his family, it's because they hate him. <laughs> yeah, well, and also to death. <laughs> well, okay, he kills some of his family. But... Yeah, brother-in-law. It's it's, it's it's hard to be Michael's brother, whether it's brother-in-law or brother. 
Uh, sure. I guess I'm judging that on the wives. Like Kate hates Michael's guts by the end. Uh, you can never Michael's imagine mom, Vito's mom. Yeah, Michael's mom Vito's has affection wife. to this day for Vito. Sure, sure. So that says it all, in my opinion. And that's what was one of the interesting things about the book. I mean, they, they hinted in the movies the fact that, like, the Godfather was aware that Connie was getting roughed up by his her husband. Yeah. But him and his wife's opinion was, well, you know, uh, Connie's a shitty wife. She's a she's a spoiled brat. She might she might need this kind of. Was that their opinion? Yeah, that was their opinion. What, he, what tells you that? I don't remember that. No, I'm saying in well, um, for one thing, when Vito's in the hospital and they're at the dinner, and uh, Carlo tells Connie to shut up, and and Sonny snaps at him like, "Don't you talk to my sister like that?" Yeah, yeah. His mom says, "Do not interfere." Huh, That's expounded okay. in the book where you know Connie comes the first time Carlo roughs him up, she comes to her father, and her father's like, "What do you want me to do?" He's your husband. Yeah, she goes, that's what I think it is. And then she goes, your, and then, and then uh, you know, she, he says, well, did you ever hit mama? And he goes, your mama never gave me reason to. And her, yeah. mo- her mom just kind of smiles at her like, yeah, you, what are you doing? Yeah, and that's in direct uh, contrast to Michael getting involved in Connie's life in this episode or in this movie uh, where he tells her, don't marry this man. Sure. You know, and, and stop, your, stop your crazy way is what you're doing. I felt like that was... Kind of, I feel like that's the way Vito might have handled it. Like, look, if you marry this man, you're going to disappoint I, me. I mean, he just shows so much disrespect for for everyone but involved. They also are... I mean, he tells her this right in front of the guy. But this is the family... I mean, yeah, but the, the other thing is this is the family he, he inherited. Yeah. You know, Vito yeah. didn't have a family. Vito had a family that he chose. He had, uh, you know, he had Clemenza and he had Tessio. And he had his wife, and he had his children. This is the family mm. he built. Michael inherited this family that was fairly dysfunctional. That's true. It was starting to become uh, kind of broken up by the time Michael gets it. Right. Now, what the real question was, would the Godfather mm. ever have murdered, like, Carlo, or we'd have found some way to co-opt him? Would, yeah. he, would he ever have murdered Fredo? Would he ever let Fredo turn into the type of person that would need to be murdered? Sure. I mean, you can't put Carlo... I don't know if I put Carlo on Michael's plate too much uh, because, well, first of all, I thought it was really funny or tragic kind of how, uh, who is it that in, that introduces them? I think it's Sonny who introduces Connie and Carlo in the very yes. last scene of this. Yes, yes, which is That's iron. so tragic because yeah. Carlo gets Sonny killed and ends up just destroying half of that family. Yeah. Uh, super tragic, but uh, I don't know. I don't put it. I don't put Carlo on Michael too much because he got Sonny killed. You know, and it's interesting because this. What that, are you gonna do? Uh, Sonny coming home with Carlo and taking him under his wing was kind of, uh, I think, intended to be an echo of the Don taking Tom Hagen in off the streets. And okay. look how well that worked out to the family. They got like another brother out of the deal. Yeah, Carlo was a cancer. Mm-hmm. So you're you're right about that. Why we're talking about these characters? Can we talk about Frank Pentangeli? Pentangeli. No, he's the only character I won't talk about. Okay, um, so he's a replacement for Clemenza. The actor who played Clemenza yeah. tried to big time Coppola mm-hmm. and said, "I need like I need to be paid like I'm Brando or something." Yeah, Coppola's I like, "Guess a basket what? Basket of oranges every day." Guess what, Clemenza? You had a heart attack in between movies, and now uh, you know your trusted lieutenant that we never met, Frank. Uh-huh. He's going to be taken over, and we see him, and we scribbled out. Clemenza on each of these pages and put Frankie in there. And I always thought, like, God damn, this guy's such a pale shadow of Clemenza. 
But the more I watch it, the more I realize that's only because he is played to be a fool. At the wedding. At, or at, or at, at the, the confirmation. Whatever it is, yeah. But then you think at the first movie, Clemenza is this big, fat, sweaty dude yeah. dancing and drinking wine <laughs> straight out of the pitcher. The and, only reason he gets redemption, I feel, is the scene with the gun with Michael. And also, he's just a badass taking care of business throughout the rest of the movie. Where We have the same thing sure. with Frankie. I mean, uh, I, I think when he first you start to get an idea of who he is is when he's in Michael's study. And he's talking yes. about, you know, he's screaming about how you know these uh, mm-hmm. Rosetta, Rosado brothers are trying to run him out of New York. Yeah. And your father did business with Hyman Roth, but he never trusted him. And he says, but I just want everybody to know they're going to have any trouble for me. And then he takes his leave. Uh, and then he continues to be more and more interesting right to his almost, I guess, final scene. Like he also was a corpse in a tub. But when he's having that conversation with Tom Hagen about the old Roman emperors and oh, yeah, when yeah. plots against them. And they're Out talk- at the prison. I mean, yeah. I think he's as good as Clemenza. Maybe, I mean, certainly not... I, I think he's... Not the pale imitation I initially saw when I first watched the movie. No, I'm I'm certainly more endeared to Frankie than I ever was to Clemenza. Clemenza seems like, you know, a guy who's all business. Frankie seems like he can get down and have a good time. Hmm. And, like, especially the scene where he's conducting the music. He's trying to get them to play Italian music. Sure. Uh, that really endeared me to Frankie as a character. And then when I see that he's not just a buffoon... Mm-hmm. Um, that actually lended a little more uh, gravitas to his actions. The real problem with this plot about the Rosado brothers and Michael wanting to lay low because he's got other plans is it feels a little Death Star too. Like that's essentially the plot of The Godfather after you know Vito exited is that Mike's trying to do something. Yeah. There's these other guys making moves against him and he wants to lull them into sleepy time so he can take care of everything in one master stroke. This is essentially mm. the plot to this movie as well. Definitely. There are so many parallels in Godfather 2 to Godfather 1. That's something that uh, Coppola was conscious of going so you, into you think this. that's a feature, not a bug? Certainly. I mean, if you listen to the commentary track for this movie, he talks about, like, this scene is a parallel to this other scene in Godfather 1. Uh, and he does that multiple times throughout the movie. So he knew that he needed to take the elements of Godfather 1 and just infuse them into Godfather 2. So the other thing I want to talk about is Hyman Roth. Well, there's tons of things I want to talk about. Hyman yeah, Roth, yeah. Uh-huh. he is, and I did not know this um, until, very, until very recently, until I got started getting steeped in Boardwalk Empire history, so the last couple of years. He's intended to be Meyer Lansky from Boardwalk Empire and also real life. Yeah, I didn't know that until you told me. That transforms how I day. see this character. For sure. This yeah. character is like a John Torrio type. He's a survivor. Well, he's better than John Torrio because, you know, he's playing that as old, broken old man. Hey, I'm retired. You know, I just, uh, you know, I got, I, I'm, I'm dying of this heart attack for 20 years. I don't got much time to live. Mm-hmm. All the while, he is still plotting for his one last score to put him on top. What, what is, what is the one last score he's doing? I don't. Okay, so does because m- the one last score it seems like an anti-score for Michael. Like I'm just going to keep Michael from getting this casino. Well, so does but, he want to take down the whole Corleone family? Like, what does he want to do? I think he wants. I think he wants. So, so there's a couple. There's a couple theories because I don't. I haven't seen there, this enough to know. There's a big thing that sure. there's, there's a couple themes. He he's pissed off about Mo Green. He is. Mo yeah. Green was kind of like his Tom Hagen. Uh-huh. 
Okay, he was like a son to him. He helped bring him up. He watched mm-hmm. this guy build this city in the desert, and then he got offed by this upstart punk that got everything handed to him. Sure, and he was pissed. Uh, so there's could be a long term the revenge plot on the Corleones and Michael in particular, just on that okay. that area. I-, I would buy that. Also, Corleones have moved out in New York. Uh, so he, through his men, uh, the Rosado brothers, he's trying to, I think, gain that that back. Yeah, the interesting thing about that is that Vito promised two, two neighborhoods to those guys, and Frankie was saying, those are my neighborhoods, I want them. That's where the whole beef between them got sure. started. And then I think the third thing is he's got this, this and this is, has a lot of basis in historical fact, the mob and you know the the barons of industry were uh, planning on setting up cuba as like a puppet government yeah, yeah. they're going to have a whole country this giant private island within a short plane ride or boat ride from the states where they could do whatever the hell they wanted to uh-huh. and chase their profits and chase their money and run their rackets with no interference from the federal government yeah i think that's his final his final score. But he's also you know. wanting to cut Michael out of it, of course, as part of his overarching. But he needed Michael's. He's, he's bitter, yeah. He needed Michael's influence and he needed Michael's money yeah. to 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 pull that off. But that's that's where I'm a little fuzzy on. I really don't understand, you know, what his grand plans were after that. But he I think it's funny they make because, mention in the film of them getting a whole bunch of money from running this government in Cuba. And then turning around and pumping that into buying a president of the U.S. Or even making Michael a president of the U.S. Or I some... mean, they make direct mention yeah, but of I think that buying was... a U.S. president. So one of the other interesting things as I watch this movie more and more is to see that Meyer and uh, – not Meyer, I'm sorry. Uh, Hyman. <laughs> uh-huh. Hyman Roth. That, that Roth and Michael are essentially running the same con on each other. Yeah, like when okay. Michael says you got to keep your enemy, your friends close, but your enemies closer. Uh-huh. Roth is running that same con on Michael. You're going to be my successor, Michael. This is going to be all for you. You're going to maybe be the president one day, or you might be the man behind the president. And imagine we're going to make history <laughs> all the while. Do they both see it? That's the thing. Does like, Roth see that? Because I know Michael does. At some point in this, because you you know you, this kind of leads into uh, the hit on Frank. Yeah, yeah. Frankie Five Angels. Mm-hmm. You know, where it seems like <laughs> this, we're uh-huh. we're led to believe that this was an attack from the Rosetta brothers, Rosado brothers, architected by Hyman Roth. I mean, we're not even led to believe it. We're told it. Who? By who? Uh, Tom says it later on. Uh, I can't remember if it's when he's in the den talking with Michael about Roth. But Michael tells different. Or if he's talking with Frankie. But that's the that's the thing. Like I don't know who to believe. I think that's correct. But Michael tells different versions of the truth to different people as a way to kind of that's true. Keep his cards close. He tells Fredo one thing. He tells Frankie another. Yeah, and you have Uh to kind of just go along with what he's doing. But I I, the 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 plot is it. It seems like the if Hyman did this, he's the fucking Joker from the Dark Knight. That's the thing. Like (laughs) I'm going to kill you, but Uh when I do, I'm going to say Michael Corleone says ha says hello in case you survive. Yeah. Then my I either eliminate my chief rival in New York and leave Michael powerless out there, or I'm going to implicate Michael against his top lieutenant and accomplish the same thing, maybe even greater. Uh huh. Because and also I don't believe that the cop. That wasn't part of the plan. So no. he had to have this plan work both ways no matter what. I mean, that's like Batman. That's the Joker. It is. That strikes me as writers sitting in a room saying, 
how can we make this plot more intricate? But then I, I start thinking, it's like, well, if Hyman Roth is as smart as Michael, I it seems like you might be able to, like, look, on in the unlikely event that this plan is foiled, I need you to say this is Michael Corleone. It's like, yeah. That's it, such a weird, like... Is it I, if you're a ga- if you're a ninety year old gangster who's so, been through the shit that Meyer Lansky's been through? That's the thing. Like I I feel like it stretches credibility. Like my suspension of disbelief is stretched so far at that point. It's like, would man, you, are these people really that smart and playing all the angles in this way? Would you think that Vito Corleone would come up with that plan? Uh, I don't I don't know. I mean, there's nothing that. There's nothing in Godfather One that is that smart. That diabolical, like that, like purely that smart. Like I see everyone just playing their cards close to their vest, yeah, um, and acting like everything is okay. But this is not this. This is an active thing that they did. It's, yeah, it's not like they're just not showing their cards. They're now showing cards, but showing weird cards like yeah. cards you've never seen before. false flag operation what is that you can't have a boat in a deck of cards that <laughs> doesn't make any sense but it's just i don't know it stretches credibility for me and i'm not going to say i don't buy that it could ever happen uh-huh it's just one of those things that makes me scratch my head and say i don't know if this is as good see as i think one. it's interesting because godfather one is essentially the story of a of a young punk mm-hmm. beating his father's rivals that his father yeah, obviously yeah. had beat his whole life because he's the yes. number one guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they needed him. He didn't need them. Uh, this Godfather 2 is a story of Michael leveling up as a badass and essentially beating his old man. Like Hyman Roth is on the level of Vito Corleone in terms of sure. power, in terms of cunning, in terms of human intelligence. And I, I kind of – when I look at it that way, I buy the fact that he's got this hmm. – you know, I buy it, but only barely. Yeah, yeah. Only barely. Like, you, you've almost lost me at that point. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, Coppola talks about how much more intricate this film is and its plotting. And I I don't know if that harms or helps it, frankly. Like, I, I love a good, you know, thriller, uh, mystery thriller kind of thing. But that's not what I felt like Godfather 1 was. And that's not what I feel like Godfather 2 needed to be. And this kind of moves into that territory a little bit. I do think that in this intricate plot, the the key statement is when Michael's trying to explain all this to Tom. And it's a great scene. We didn't talk a lot about Tom Hagen in the last, um, because a lot of this stuff didn't come to fruit until Godfather 2, where Michael yeah. sets him and says, you know, Tom, the reason I've kept you out of all the family business is for this very reason. Mm-hmm. You're like my, in case of emergency, break glass. You're a person I can absolutely trust because you haven't been involved in these uh, uh, dirty dealings. I also think there's a part of that was that he wanted Tom to be his consigliere during the legitimate years of his family, which he Michael yeah. saw as like, you know, that's the legacy. That's the 40 years I'm going to – I don't want your hands dirty in the five years of bloodshed. I want your hands clean so you can work with me in the 40 years of us ushering our family into greatness. Yeah. Michael had to throw all that away because of, you know, the the hit on <laughs> the him. War, yeah. But the fact that he had this ultimate trust, I'm going to make you the Don. I'm going to trust you with my family, my family's safety. Mm-hmm. But he made this, this comment like, I've always tried to think the way the people around you think. And yeah. mm-hmm. that was hugely informative, uh, uh, informative for me when I first saw this. And it's I try 
anytime I'm looking at politics, anytime I'm looking at family squabbles, I've got this almost maddening ability to see the other side of the equation. And I think Hmm. that's the only way you can make any kind of progress in the world or have any kind of clear view of what's going on. If if you just say like, well, I'm a liberal and conservatives are fucking stupid, or I'm a conservative and liberals are fucking idiots, or, Mm -hmm. you know, you are, you don't understand the world enough to affect any real change or to, or to put yourself into a better situation. Um, And I think that, you know, of course, does things don't really work out for Michael? So maybe I'm, <laughs> well, maybe I'm following the wrong wrong advice. Do here. they like they don't work out in his personal life? Does Michael, in the end, get what he wanted, which is to go legit with the family operations? I don't know. I mean, could this be a clean break for him? He's out in Nevada. He's just defeated all of his enemies. Apparently, he now has there's more a sequel hotels. that we could find all the answers to. But <laughs> it seems like he's got much more. Sure. No, I don't think he's any closer to being legitimate. Why not? There's a huge vacuum of power. Well, I mean, I guess he could just leave New York City. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's already basically left New York City. Frankie was, as far as I can tell, one of his only ties back the there. Once the Senate but... committee had a hearing and put him on trial, I think that <laughs> his in his ability to himself go legit, maybe now his his hopes, like his father, are shifting towards maybe his son. <laughs> which is, I think that's That'd the be key tension between yeah. him and Kate. The fact that he's t- she's going to take his children from him... It wasn't just a Sicilian crap. It wasn't just a machismo. It's like, if you take my children away, then I've done all this for nothing. I yeah. was a war hero. I was an accomplished, you know, college scholar. Um, I was a man that was on the way to greatness and legitimacy, and I had to come in here and help. I, I couldn't allow my father be murdered and my family be driven. You know, I couldn't do that. I could uh-huh. have. But but my sense of my pride and my honor and my loyalty would not allow me to do that. Mm-hmm. If you take my children from me, then I did. I made all those sacrifices for nothing. But Michael doesn't see that. Had he been separate separated from his family and the things that were going on in it, that might have given him the future that his family so desired for him. You know, I mean, that could be the same case with his children now, is that they grow up in the shadow of their father and become just like him. Or they're separated from their father and become sta- like good standing citizens, you know. So, like, I, I feel like this movie has a a supremely tragic ending. Sure. Uh, Michael wins the battle that he's fighting, but he loses so much more in the process. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like that's the thing. Like, I was talking, I think, with you about this earlier. How this movie is well made. This movie is. Uh, greatly acted, it looks fantastic and everything, but without the themes in this film, I feel like it's just another gangster movie. Sure. Like, the, the themes It's the family of that makes it. The family, the uh, the father and son dynamic that they've got going on with Vito and Michael, those are the things that make the Godfather series work, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that always keep me coming back. Mm-hmm. But it's weird because some of that... I feel like in the first movie, that case is very strong that, you know, were it not for this a mafia family, this could be an admirable story of starting from nothing and coming, you know, power through uh, a love for family and loyalty and all this stuff. In in in, in Godfather Part 2, it's almost more Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, I'm not like saying excess, that that works out for the them. The excess of that success <laughs> directly leads to their downfall. 
I mean, yeah, it wasn't qualudes I, and whores and coke. It was murdering <laughs> your brother and going sure. after an old man beyond all reason and losing so many of your valuable assets, you know. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that the family stuff turns out happy. Obviously, it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, what I'm saying is that those those powerful ideas are the thing that really pin this movie up on the wall and say this is great. We also didn't talk a lot about Fredo in the first movie, other than the fact that he's kind of a joke. Sure. Fredo's big in this movie. Yeah. Uh, obviously. Do we? One thing that bugs me when I'm watching this movie is the call that Johnny makes, who is the uh, Italian spokesman for Roth, uh, yeah. Roth. He calls Fredo in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Did we need that scene? I feel like the movie is instantly greater if we, that scene, and we entirely have to figure this out from the audience, because at a surprisingly early point in the film, this pulls a lot of the drama about whether Fredo was in on it or not. Or if without that move, without that mm-hmm. scene, are people just completely lost later with the conversation that they're having at the crazy-ass giant dick strip club in Cuba, uh, where, where Fredo reveals himself? Maybe I from listening to the commentary, I know that this is a scene where um, so so couple is talking um, about this scene. Sure. And he says, I always advise my film students to shoot their actors talking on the phone. And especially if they can make it to where you can barely see their mouth moving, because what they did with this scene is if you look, you can tell. And after he points this out, it's so fucking obvious. You can tell that Fredo is actually saying none of the shit that they're having Fredo say. Uh, they went back after the fact and added that dialogue in specifically to make it more clear what's going on. So apparently Coppola thought, yes, we did need this scene to make the movie work, um, to make the, this particular part of the plot work. So the they shot it. it just knowing like this is our safety valve in, yes. in post-production. If we get and, and it's not making sense, I can insert this somewhere with whatever yeah. dialogue I want. Uh-huh. <laughs> To patch over it's any smart. plot holes. It's I guess. super smart, but but that shows that he didn't think it was satisfactory without that scene. For whatever reason. Do you think he has shots of everyone talking on the phone he in might. some I would love to see location? Those. Like, there's one of Michael, there's <laughs> one of Tom, and it's like, you know, uh, uh, whatever I need to spackle over the holes in the film, I've got it. That it is actually really fucking smart. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, what do you think of the guy that plays Fredo, his acting chops? Uh, you know, I can't remember seeing him in much else. What what else is he in? Beats Have you fuck seen out him of me. Beats, I don't know. I'm saying in this particular role, because I used to think like I don't know if this guy is a is a great actor, uh, or if he's just like that. You know, like that's the thing. I can't really judge his acting ability. Well, I, I guess his performance, like because I, I see him his as, interpretation of Fredo. I see him as annoying. Like I buy him when he is the sensitive, thoughtful. Uh, person, he's the only one that thinks to congratulate uh-huh. Mike on on dropping out of college and fighting a war and seeing like what a sacrifice that is. He's got yeah. this big heart, uh-huh. but he also has this this. He's also in my mind stupid, uh-huh. and he's also ambitious. He, he is stupid. I don't I don't think that there's any way to get around that. He gives himself away to Michael and doesn't even realize it. And and but so is my annoyance with his character a result of this guy's acting to make me feel that way? So it's like one of those things I think that so. this character designed to be hateable and you uh, hate him and you sympathize with Mike wanting to kill him. And then when he when he does die, then you start feeling like, oh, God, maybe we've all gone too far. No, I, so I think selling that's that character, intended. Selling that character is a tough acting challenge. Definitely. You don't want 
you don't want him to act like he's as smart as Michael or or as tough as Michael. You know, I mean, he's a weak, kind of dim-witted brother of the family. But he got the one thing he did got from his old man was the people's touch. Like Fredo's got this glad-handing yeah. way about him that just puts yeah. people at ease, where right. Michael feels like a snake slithering through the room. Um, it bites him in his ass because yeah. he's got no, he doesn't have this the his, the, the Don's uh, keen intellect and patience and planning. Um, but he's also like I feel yeah. the other thing is I feel like that even Tom Hagen when he's laying this out after the fact, like Fredo just got taken advantage of. Fredo never intended to betray the family. Like, yeah, you're right about that. And I also uh, feel like that conversation they had in, in, in Cuba when he first arrived and Mike said, you know, you got the money and they're talking about it's not easy to be Vito's son. Mm-hmm. And uh, Fredo says something like, man, I wish we had spent this kind of time together years ago, implying that uh-huh. Michael has essentially ignored Fredo. He hasn't. You know, the things that Vito said about, yeah. like, spending time with your family is important. You got to do that. You can't be a man if you don't spend time with your family. Those are the lessons that Michael ignored. Yeah. And they bit him in the ass in this movie. Sure. I, I also think Fredo doesn't quite see his role in the family the way he needs to see it. Um, he wants to be Michael. And he wants to be, you know, the the tough guy making the decisions. But there is a need. Mike, Michael doesn't have his touch with people, like you said. There's a need for that kind of liaison between families, between uh, business partners. You need the Fredo out there also shaking the hands, kissing the babies a yeah. little bit. He doesn't see that role as nearly as important as Michael, and maybe it's not. But what he doesn't understand about it is that Michael's not really distancing him from the family necessarily. He's just got him in a different role. And, and it, Fredo yeah. just doesn't value that role nearly as much. Fredo's not smart enough to see that he's in the role. Exactly. And what a good deal. Like, there's a scene that I always sit up and take notice when, you know, Fredo's wife is acting the fool. And uh, yeah. he comes over kind of like tail between his legs and he starts to apologize. Like, you know, she's gets. And Michael says, Look, you're my brother. You don't have to apologize. You never have to explain yourself to me. Uh-huh. That's a pretty sweet deal uh, to get from your brother. Sure. Yeah, I mean, Vito would have grabbed you and said, "You can act like a man," and maybe he should have. Like, <laughs> maybe what, an maybe. open question is if if he had slapped Fredo around a little bit more, uh-huh. uh, would would he turn that different? You know, I don't know. I but don't Fredo know. had this weird thing where he felt like he could do more, but and and he had a sweet, comfortable existence, but he wanted more. I I just don't feel like he's actually as trivial as he thought he was in that family. What the, so what the hell did he do then? He made all the arrangements, apparently, with everyone in, in Vegas. I mean, look what they did. They sent him out there to talk. Oh, Green. bullshit. He chased, he chased skirts. He drank. I he... agree. He did all those things. But also, he established relationships out there. I mean, yeah, how did he they walked get their... up to Mo Green and said, my brother, the Don of New York, wants to meet with you. <laughs> Pretty I much, mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, like... I, I think it's certainly a, a lesser role than Michael, but it's not a completely unimportant one. I feel like he could have been, like, the family informant. He could have, like, been the gregarious guy that no one takes serious because he's fucking Fredo. Uh-huh. And he can go and he can meet with rival gangs like the, the lieutenants and stuff and get them drunk and high roll with them and chase skirts. <laughs> and they're going to loosen up and tell him things. And he could he could be – he could that'd be that back channel to Michael. But, again, he's not yeah. smart enough to see his limitations and his strengths. And yeah. I don't think Michael maybe appreciated his brother the way he should have as yeah, well. Yeah, you might be right about that, too. 
uh, like he Michael seems like he saw his brothers and sisters as people that need to be protected and watched over and not people that could be trusted and relied on. Yeah. And then they acted, you know, like you treat people, you teach people how to treat you and they just all taught each other how to treat each other terribly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by the end of this, Michael's trust is completely eroded in everyone around him. And it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, I won't say heartbreaking, but it is sad at the very least to see the way that he questions Tom's loyalty at the end. And I understand his reasons for yes. doing it, but that's where, you know, Tom, Michael's gone too far. Yeah. Tom has never shown you anything but loyalty. Yeah. Uh, never showed anything but your father loyalty. Why at this moment would he betray you? You, you don't realize that Fredo was just too stupid to realize that he was betraying you. And that Frankie is not actually a part of this family. And so, like, why stop trusting the people in your family? The thing point? is, is there could be, I, if you, if I watch this movie another 10 times, I might have the answers to all these questions. Maybe. It wouldn't surprise yeah. me because there's a lot of things where I just thought were unsolvable and they were solvable by me watching the movie more. Sure. I, and I don't think that's, I'm not asking that question to point out a flaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I'm asking that question for is to say, how is Michael's character informed by that? You know? One thing that I'm almost sure I'm at, but I'm not totally sure, uh, Senator Greary's downfall, where he murders the hooker. Yeah. Did did the senator murder the hooker, or was he drugged that someone came in and murdered her and then set him up for it? Because it's the, the, the case for that this was a setup was the fact that, uh, you know... He was in a Corleone hotel uh-huh. that happened to be managed by Fredo. Uh-huh. So there's He was the, withholding the license and he extorting was Michael. One of the all-time, like, you want this guy to get it so bad when he's first <laughs> into it. Because he just, like, uh-huh. nobody talks to... Like, even Mo Green didn't talk to that that way to, to, to Michael. Like, just... It's one thing to be angry, but the condescension. And, like, you're nothing... And I am better yeah. than you, and I can treat you this way, and there's nothing you can do. And then to see him be brought to heel this way, it's got to be Michael's machinations, right? Or or was it just them knowing that the senator would fuck up and letting Keeping it hang an himself and then being the one that swoop in there with a solution? I have a definitive answer. Okay. From the mouth of the creator himself. All right. It was a setup. Gotcha. Uh, Coppola says something... Uh, that indicates, yes, Michael planned that, and he did that in order to get the gaming license and all that shit. Sure, sure. So, I was pretty sure that was it, but that was definitely. one thing. Yeah. Um, I love that shot because they had the shot of the senator sitting at, like, the vanity. Uh-huh. And he was looking into the mirror, and the dead girl's face was looking right back into him in the mirror. <laughs> It was like nice. something that I just noticed on this watch. I thought it was really brilliant. Speaking of brilliant scenes, when we go to Cuba and we see that these barons of industry and organized crime are essentially trying to turn this into Tortuga, yeah, the old mythical pirate island, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and they're passing a solid gold telephone around, which is the the gift of one of the telephone companies. And you see all of the business guys; they're like picking it up and oh wow, look how heavy and oh shiny, ooh wow, this is such a Michael just takes it and passes and doesn't even look on it, look yeah. at it. They take at least 90 seconds to do this all around the table. Hyman Roth is the only other person that just is dismissive. And I felt like that's such a great way to non-verbally show the differences oh, yeah. between Michael and these foppish business leaders and also the differences and similarities between him and Roth. For sure. 
Uh, I thought that was great. And actually, he's Coppola still has that that uh, prop, that uh-huh. golden telephone. Does he? That he keeps at his winery, yeah. <laughs> Along with Michael's desk. Which, Interesting. Yeah. I would love to sit at Michael's desk. Yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, I would. I like the box that Michael has on his desk. That wooden, like carving, like this really ornately carved wooden box. Is that a cigar box? You think? I I assume his so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh Speaking of brilliant, how about slicing up Cuba? Oh, that scene is fantastic. Yeah. The 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 birthday. I think it's his birthday. Hyman Ross birthday, and it's in it's it's painted up like Cuba, and he's handing out slices. Uh huh. And it's kind of like the Milton scene from Office Space. Only Michael's, you know, it's like, don't be greedy, Milton. Wait for your turn. Michael gets uh, the, you know, he gets his, the last slice. And it's clearly, you can see him, like, his eyes are saying, this is my fucking cake. Why are, why is my, why are you people getting pieces of my fucking cake? Yeah. Yeah, uh, no, I, and that's, that was there definitely as an allusion to what they're doing with Cuba as well. Uh, which I think is fantastic, you know? I mean, if you can... If you can work those themes into the scenery of your movie, why not? And he does such a many good things with the pacing. Another example is when Fredo, he flies the $2 million down to cash to Cuba, and they're sitting in this outdoor cafe, and they're having lunch. Yeah. And, um, you know, he asks him about this assassination, and then the waiter comes up to clear a table. And I don't, I mean, you know... Th- and it takes like, you know, 20 seconds to clear this table. All the while, you get the chance to see Fredo's reaction and Michael's reaction. Yeah, it interrupts that conversation. But right it felt, there. it's like, if he, without the waiter, without the waiter there coming to interrupt, this would just be a silly scene of these guys eyeballing each other. It'd be like some kind of yes. s- Spanish soap opera. Uh-huh. But that allows the tension to build, and these guys give this awesome performance with their face. I yeah. again like Coppola is so fucking good, and it and it works because the actors are so good too. Like, yeah, you can take great material, but if you suck as an actor, it's going to be bad, uh, and vice versa. So, I mean, it's really just everything comes together in these films. From my question, here's another question. Speaking of unnecessary, I, I, yeah, I have tons of stuff still to talk about. This is going to be. A long podcast. No, I'm not I even halfway like. through my notes yet. Okay, dude. me either. <laughs> I'm not trying. I, so I should stop saying another thing. We haven't even really <laughs> talked about Vito's section of this film yet. No, not really. Like just barely. Um, I, th- my opinion, my theory is that from Cuba on, Fredo is actually true blue for Michael, and would never betray him, and he never meant him any. I think you're right. And he never meant him any harm in the first place. Mm-hmm. If Michael. And and this is but will he, he fuck up again and just be too stupid to realize thing. that he did it? Is like, that, is he more of a liability because of how dumb? So he do is? you risk your soul for security, or do you uh, do you try to keep your brother close? Well, we know keep, what Michael does. Yeah, I know, but I'm saying it's like you know, it's a what if, like if he had, a, you know, because because putting Fredo through yeah. the exile clearly changed him, definitely. And I think that he was ready to play his role from that point, but not for for how long? You never exactly, know. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, even though if even if he thinks he's doing things hundred percent right, he might be too dumb to be trusted. And he's just too dumb, and it's too late to forgive him. But yeah, I just wondered. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I'm man. Why do you think Michael loses his family and Vito doesn't? I mean, I know we talked about this a little bit, but specifically, I I see. Michael as as much less loving for his family and more calculating than his father. Um, 
and that extends even to his family. Like, I think he doesn't, like you said earlier, you know, Vito says you got to spend time with your family or you're not a man. Michael doesn't do that. Michael doesn't spend time with anybody but Tom, really. I've got a solid theory. Why do you, I want to hear yours first. Why do you think? I think he views his family more as secondary than Vito did. Like, the business is first, family is second. And I think Vito viewed them as both equal. Just equal parts of a whole. I think what's clear in the birthday scene where he announces that he's going, he's rejecting his family. He's going to, uh, to fight for his country when he's explaining things to Kay and the wedding sequence and the Godfather to Michael views his Mm. family with contempt. Like a thing that's dragging him down as, as something's beneath him. Like I'm a better person than these criminals. I don't want to be this type of person. You're right, he does in Godfather 1, certainly. And he gets drug into that, like, you know, he he gets drug into this system, and then he goes over and he sees how the old... He kind of backs into a love and appreciation where Vito was born into it. Like, you see the concern that he had on, like, you can see how anguished Vito was about Fredo being sick and he having no medicine to give to him. Yeah. I never see... Like, when you see Michael looking at his son's picture that he drew him or, you know, compare compare Michael going down and sitting on his son's bed and said, I'm going away, I'm I'm leaving for business, and his son saying, I can help you. That is essentially the same scene that we saw with Stephen Graham in the late, latest season of Boardwalk Empire. Sure. One really emotionally hit, one kind of didn't, and it's because there's something wrong with Michael, man. That yeah. can I think there's some kind of contempt that he has that is tainted, huh. that he loathes himself somehow for making all these sacrifices at a subconscious level, and and it and it, and it, it influences the way he treats his family, and ultimately yeah. his family was kind of a bit of a bit of a chucklehead, and he had too much contempt and too little humanity to deal with that. Okay, I could buy that totally. Do you think Fred would would Michael have killed Fredo in Cuba? If he came with me, said, come with me, you're still my brother, would he have killed him? You mean if shit didn't break bad in Cuba? Um, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that Regardless, scene. If, if Fredo had come back with Michael instead of trying to go his own way and go into exile, would Michael have killed him? I feel like I he... don't know, because when Fredo does come back, Michael doesn't kill him. Waited till his mother died. Yeah. I think that's the key. Which, which he promised, uh, who, Tom? Is Tom the guy he promised? Who did he promise that to? I don't know. I think it was... Oh, no, no. I'm Okay, so Coppola in the commentary track said uh, Mario Puzo made him promise not to kill Fredo until after the, the mother died. Yeah. Because he, like, Michael would have too much respect for his mother to kill and that a seems exactly. So then. I think Fredo was doomed yeah. either way, but Fredo would have been safe coming back until his mom died. I think so, yeah. For sure. Okay. Well, um, what do you got? I, I mean, just tons of stuff. I I wanted to talk a little bit about our favorite scenes like we did in the first one. Um, that that scene where Geary comes in at the beginning and, and Michael says, you know, I'll make you an offer. My offer is nothing. Uh, that's just so good. The way he says it is nothing. In fact, not only is it nothing, but you're going to pay It doesn't really impress upon Geary, though. Like, he he shrugs it off. Like, I'm too powerful for this shit to work on me. It kind of plays as the opposite of the Undertaker scene from the first, 
where this guy is like on his belly. He's disrespected the Don. He's uh-huh. begging for forgiveness. He knows he shouldn't get into this situation, but he's got to because he wants revenge and justice for his daughter. Geary's the opposite. He's going to Michael with total lack of respect, uh-huh. totally rubbing it into his face with complete disregard for how much power Michael has. And you just can't wait to see him get fucked. Sure. But it's such an enjoyable scene to see Geary just lay on the crazy racial insults, the insults to his family. Geary kind of gets off easy, honestly. I mean, being blackmailed is certainly better than it could have turned out for him. (laughs) Yeah, and honestly, did he flip on Michael during the testimony? Or did by recusing Uh, himself... Yeah, he. I think he recused himself, and you know, he gives this big flowery speech about the Italian people in the process, which I thought was hilarious. But it also was like, don't let the bad apples influence your view of all Italians. I feel like he was putting Michael in that bad apples column. Oh, see, I didn't. Like, I, I think Michael still has everything over his head there. So why is Gary going to flip on him? Do you, yeah. do you think he just thinks he's safe now? But why, but why recu- would he? Why recuse yourself from the committee when you could be somebody? Maybe he thinks that this is going to go badly for Michael anyway, and he doesn't want to be a part of that. That's what I'm thinking. That he's cutting bait and run because he didn't yeah. see Michael's. Ult- so uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens to Geary after this. And, and I don't know how what, what Michael viewed it. You know, with my knowledge of the movie as way now as it is now, I kind of saw that as a very mild betrayal of michael hmm. it was it was okay. kind of like him trying to split the middle down what he needed to do to make his constituents happy back home <laughs> sure and what he needed to do in case you know what He's he could get away with if michael survives right 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 yeah yeah maybe you're right i don't know i didn't see it that way okay uh so what do you think there is to i'm, I'm gonna switch over to Vito a little bit here okay for at least a while uh, what do you think it is about him not speaking, but he sings when he gets to America? Do you, do you think there's any there there? No, I think it was just a very uh, poetic way to cap that scene. A little boy. Yeah. You know, the, the, you can see this boy is formidable. Like uh, a Jesse Pinkman, a nine-year-old Jesse Pinkman would have curled up into a ball and cried. Uh-huh. Vito gets there, pulls up a chair, looks at Statue of Liberty and sings. Like a li- yeah. this this is like this is some kid. I mean, has he heard like of the, you know, the reputation of America, which is, you know, freedom and everyone's got a shot here and is this something that he's like happy to be in America and so he's singing? I don't know cuz he's 9 years old. Does How he much... understand any of that stuff? Yeah, like my kid my son's an idiot. And then he doesn't clearly... know the rest of the world. He thinks the world is the United States and Egypt. <laughs> That's the thing. Anytime like... he says something about like foreign country, it's always Egypt. Egypt. Why Egypt? Beats the shit out of me because it's got pyramids, pyramids and we're always yeah. talking about the Middle East. And also his Bible stuff. It's always Egypt. Stuff happened in Egypt. But that's how he right. sees the world. Like if I like if I could ask him what's the fundamental difference between North Korea and the United States, he wouldn't even know what the fuck North Korea is. Maybe <laughs> no Russia, sure. but yeah. yeah. Huh, okay. So you don't think Vito or has any idea? No, I just think it's like this is a kid that has very little fear, and his not talking is more of him listening and paying attention. Okay. And even late in life, you see Vito, he's a man of few words. Yeah. Yeah, and I I like uh, Robert De Niro's performance of Vito. It's, It's just subtle enough to where 
Because, I mean, I've seen, you know, Robert De Niro's later works. Just and like Robert De Niro can get over the top and ridiculous. Robert De Niro is stuck playing, you know, I feel like, you know, Goodfellas, the, the one-two punch of Goodfellas and Casino ruined Robert De Niro in the yeah. same way that, like, Mad Dog and Glory and Scent of a Woman ruined Al Pacino. <laughs> sure, I can buy that. But in this film, he does such a great job of of subtly acting like a younger Vito um, so much so that I can hardly tell it's Robert De Niro. Uh, he really does transform himself, I think, into oh, more that of a scene Vito. where the apartment manager comes and like reverse negotiates that old woman's mortgage. Oh yes, that's yeah. brilliant. The way he channels the Brando mannerisms and uh-huh. he says like six words in the whole damn thing. That scene. So uh, another commentary thing here. Uh, Coppola said, and you can tell if you watch this scene, it's so fucking obvious and it's hilarious. The guy, the apartment manager, uh, comes up to the door and he can't get in. He can't uh-huh. open the door. Uh-huh. And then when he goes to get out, he can't open the door and he uh-huh. fumbles around. Sure. So that was actually a nail that they had that they put in that door that kept it from opening. And they didn't tell the guy. And they didn't tell the guy. So if you watch it, you can see the kid who opens the door for him yeah. goes up, remo- pulls the nail out, uh, opens the door, and then when he's got his back to him, he puts the nail back in and goes to stand on his gotcha, mark. Gotcha, gotcha. And the, t- the entire time, you can see the kid like kind of smiling, like laughing like he knows what's about to come up. And then when Robert De Niro and him are laughing and, and chuckling back and forth, it's because they know that that nail yeah, is yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, But, it, it but looks... it's also funny on the face of it. Like, sure. this guy just fumbling around with this door, and he's so awkward and so yeah. uh, worried about who he's talking to. He doesn't break the tape because Coppola's just sitting there and saying, well, he's not saying cut, so I guess I'll continue. Yes. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, the one, the one kind of downer that I got from the Coppola uh, commentary is that... You know, it, it, you do get the flavor of like he's kind of dis he he doesn't like this film as much, a little bit. And also, yeah. it feels like the the first one was such a fucking struggle, and this one was so clockwork mm-hmm. that I feel like he liked the fight, he liked the struggle. And but he definitely was, doesn't say that. But th- don't mean, you get that opinion that like he that that this hmm. thing just wasn't as you know everything ran smooth. He got his way. He was had a lot of power because The Godfather was such a hit. That it felt like that it wasn't as much fun making hmm. it, and there weren't there weren't nearly as many cool details and stories like that as there were from the first Godfather. Yeah, I don't know where the division between fun and success needs to be drawn here, where that line needs to go. Because I, like, I don't, I I don't know. Artists, I've I've heard it said that artists uh, sometimes do their best work when they're constrained. Uh, and sure. then given a, a infinite blank canvas, they they don't produce work on the same caliber. But I I certainly felt like Coppola himself would tell you I had a I had a much better time making Godfather Two. Whether that contributed to Godfather One potentially being better or worse than Godfather Two, I couldn't tell you. So you think the you got the I, opposite I, I impression based on what he says. He certainly enjoyed the process more, and I, 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 I just don't know. I, I just can't tell. So. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> Sorry for the non-answer, but <laughs> it, it really is like uh, in my head. I'm not sure. That's not weird sure. because you know I read it's, I read a bunch of interviews, 
and behind the scenes stuff. And then I listened to his com. Whereas the Godfather, I listened to commentary first and then did mm. the research. Okay. I wonder if I, I'm, I'm a little bit influenced by, and I wonder if that's this, this him turning against the Godfather too, and all the sequels, the interview I saw, or again was referenced 2008. I don't know when he recorded his commentary. I don't know either. The Coppola restoration, I think came out in like 2008. Hmm. So, that was contemporary of him coming and saying, man, I wish I hadn't made any sequels. I'm very surprised that it came across that, yeah, this was a super enjoyable experience. But, again, maybe that is. Like, he had didn't feel like he suffered enough. Yeah, potentially. Speaking of favorite scenes, love everything about Vito taking down Don Fanucci. Yeah. yeah. That long tracking shot of him through the festival, uh-huh. along the rooftops, uh, him lying in wait, everything that Don's doing... Uh, where he just, uh, you know, he's he's uh, looking at this puppet show. He's like, oh, this is too violent for me. And the way he's, like, you know, stapling $100 bills to the Jesus cross. And yeah, he just yeah, seems yeah. like a fucking idiot. Yeah, what an insult to take the 100 that those guys just gave you and staple it to that. Yeah. That mannequin. And then when yeah. he gets taken down, we see the reverse where, you know, Vito goes back through the festival the wrong way. And yeah. he puts, you know, he, he puts the gun in all the different chimneys. Great way, great way to end this, the, the first half of the movie going into the intermission. For sure. Um, I know we've talked a little bit about. Clemenza. By the way, it should be a fucking federal law that if your movie's three hours long, you have an intermission. <laughs> Fuck you, Titanic, uh, uh, Peter Jackson, with your Hobbit you, movies Jackson. with no intermission. Yeah, yeah. We need an intermission on these. The first, we don't need three three-hour-long Hobbit movies. No, nowhere near. But it. if you're going to do it, you need a goddamn <laughs> intermission. Okay, I'll I'll lobby for that when I get in power. Please. Uh, the, the other thing. So we've talked a little bit about you know whether or not Vito ever gets in a life of crime if Clemenza's not there, uh, but he does, and he takes him in this house, and he goes to get the rug. I absolutely love this scene. Oh, it's I mean, so great. There's there's the comedy of it, certainly, when, you know, he's like, oh, well, my friend, he's got a rug. Oh, yeah. he's not home. Oh, oh I must have left it. Guy. Oh, I forgot to leave me my key. Yeah, can you That's believe That's okay. This? He won't mind. And he breaks in. Robert De Niro all the time is looking around his shoulders. What? Hmm? Is yeah. somebody going to see this? Like, he's not stupid. He knows this yeah. is wrong, but he also is going to go along with it. But then once they get inside, that scene where the cop comes to the door... The way that that is shot is incredible. It goes from comedy to it's this incredible. tense. It's so tense and it's so dark because you know exactly what's going to happen if that guy opens that door. It's a gorgeous shot. and It's beautiful, yeah. I, I love yeah. the fact on the, the Blu-rays that, that all of the... Um, all of the menus are animated and they're all like these these stills. Like one of them is Vito sitting in a chair singing to the Statue of Liberty. Just the only thing moving is his feet kicking. Ah, and then okay. there's also the Clemenza scene where he's up against the wall motionless with this cop peering in. Yeah. And the yeah. first one, it was the scene of the uh, – of, uh, uh, who was Michael uh, Paul... standing in the window? Well, there's one of them, but also was well, yeah of the boathouse. Yeah. But in the first one, there's one of the transition scenes was uh, uh, Polly lean slumped over the car murdered in that sea of oh, meat, you know huh. off on the off ramp there's so many but there's there's so yeah. many almost paintings in these movies and that's one of the greatest ones that you just almost gasp when you see it for the first time yeah no the i mean i i believe he calls it a a tableau in that scene and i uh i just love it i think it's great uh another thing like you know speaking of taking your time like when we come back from intermission 
we spend ages just going with Michael through his house looking for Kay. And yeah, we yeah, needed we that to feel the isolation and yes. to feel the distance that's crept up between it. The other thing, great thing about this movie is you can see the moment that their marriage ended. Like we talked about the when the, is that? So the, the scene in the at the end of the first Godfather when she looks in and sees him becoming the Don. That's yeah. the start. Mm-hmm. But the moment their marriage ends is when they're all huddled in his basement after the attack, and she has her arms around her children, and she shoots him a dagger glare. <laughs> That's the, the, and what's funny is yeah. that, that the marriage ends twice. The first time is I think it ended there. The second time is when Michael uh, told you know tried to comfort her about the miscarriage. And then he became aware oh, of the man. abortion. That's when yeah. both parties became aware of it. But yeah, I, I just love scene. the fact that you can see, because even at the party, he, she's chiding him about, you know, you said five years has been seven. Yeah. He's like, I'm trying, darling. I'm trying. And you can tell that she's still very much in love with him. Yeah. But that violence br- brought to their bedroom by his lifestyle was it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's another fantastic fucking scene where he finds out about the abortion. Can we talk about Jeez. the oranges meaning death? Like Godfather okay. is, is, yeah. is, is largely credited for starting that with you know the dawn being gunned down. Uh-huh. There's oranges from hell to breakfast in this movie, and they're totally un un uh, unassociated with death. Completely, yeah. And Coppola addresses this point in the commentary as well, and he says basically the orange is a symbol of Sicily, both the good and the bad parts. And, and at some point, like along the lines, they had heard about this theory and stuff and they dismissed that, but they said there's something about the orange that is foreboding. Um, it is, that is representative of the old world and the new world and tying them together. And that's why they use it so much, but it doesn't have any meaning beyond that. And it pops in a movie that's so dark. Exactly. Yeah. Every time you see his oranges, you kind of take notice of your eyes drawn to them. Yeah. So I mean, even even Coppola himself has discredited that. Hmm. So stop saying it, people. <laughs> um, okay, uh, what else we need to talk about? Um, I'm wondering, like, what if what if Vito had had a same a similar revelation to what Michael gets uh, with Kate telling him about the abortion? How do you think Vito reacts to that as opposed to Michael? Because Michael threatens her. Mike, I mean, Michael essentially says, I'm going to kill you if you try and take my kids. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he threatens her. He just says it's a, what you're asking is an impossibility. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> sure. But to, to her, that's got to mean, like, sure. I will use and all my you, means. And, and then when later, when killing is one of them. When that scene where Connie is trying to get her out of the house before Michael gets back because she's oh, had yeah. some kind of prearranged visit. So tense. That feels like a bomb is going to go off. <laughs> and then when Michael gets there and just, like, backs her out of his house with the force of his personality, uh-huh. shuts the door right in her face in front of his children. <laughs> Holy shit, that's cold. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I don't, I, I don't know because, like, I... It, it, you're asking me, like, you know, a lot of times you, on Ask Science subreddit, where you have scientists answering questions, every once in a while people will come in and be like, mm. if the sun just disappeared, what would the planets do? And the scientists also like, yeah. you're asking us to speculate on something that is not, like, impossible by our current technical standards, 
it's literally impossible. You can't make yeah. that much mass, any mass, disappear, let alone the mass of the sun. Like, so you think that Vito would just never be in a situation that's where the thing, his like, family would turn on him? You're asking me to imagine a situation where his wife drops, <laughs> like, like, I cheated on you, Vito. Your ch- you, Fredo and Michael aren't even your son. That's well, Clemenza's I, I, sons. I, I, I can't I fucking knew, conceive. I knew about Fredo, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Michael, my only kid. Right, Fredo, <laughs> I knew he was a gypsy baby. I'll give you that one. But Michael, like, I, I can't conceive of... Yeah, you're right. That you're right. happening because their relationship is so strong. Yeah, it's fundamentally different. I, and the yes. way they view family, okay. like, 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 remember the scene where Michael's talking to his mother, mm-hmm. uh, where and he's pretty much a remorseful, pitiless bastard in his whole. And, and you're not asked to feel sympathy for Michael through much of the, much of the movie. Which time is this? But this scene is where mother. he's at. He's 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 right after intermission. He's he's going to say, "Mom." I want to know what was in father's heart. Okay. Gotcha. Like when he's protecting the family's being strong, did he ever worry about losing us? And you could see the confusion on her face. Like, yeah. what? what? You, you can't lose your family. Yeah. That's, th- that's why I say it's like, I can't even that's imagine. That's crushing, man, because Michael knows he is like, you go to your mom and you say, uh, why am I losing my family? She's like, you can't lose your family. She can't even conceive of a scenario under which the family would turn on you. But Michael has created that scenario. And That's he blames fucked. it on the times, which I think there's a little bit to that. Uh, I, I mean, maybe with Connie, that's that's brought out a little bit. Yeah. You know, she goes a little off the deep She's end. She's a wild child. Yeah. And the drugs and everything's like, sure. you know, this used, Vito is making this thing an honorable, respectable, as much as you can make running rackets and extortion and murder. Right. But this, like, I, part of this is the prophecy of the Don coming true, right? Part of it is, yeah. Like with the we drugs are kind of be, just turning everything by, by by pursuing money at all costs. It's just like capitalism too, right? Anytime you sure. start pursuing money at the cost of everything else, things go bad. Yeah, definitely. Um, so why don't why don't you think? I mean, there's obviously a theme of Michael losing his family, and I think that's super obvious in this film. Uh, Michael, in the end, doesn't lose his kids. Why do you think that Coppola and company? Coppola, Puzo, and everyone decided not to take those from Michael. How do you know he didn't lose them? I suspect he did. Because even so, I feel like. Do you feel like Kate is perceptive when she's given her speech about, um, you know, there's something wrong with Anthony. You don't see it because you don't spend enough time with him. But he's, you know, I I feel like yeah. she oh, was. Pers- there's there's a great scene. Um, but before I forget to talk about this. That scene where Michael and Kate are arguing in their house um, or, or in an apartment somewhere or something. And the kids, and the are, kids are out in the playing. hall. And you can see the contrast between what the the son knows is going on because yeah. he's old enough and he understands and what the daughter is doing. She's and, just running around playing. Yeah. That's – ah, that's And later brutal. on, his, his mom saying, you know, Anthony, give your mother a hug and a kiss. He's like nine years old. That should be yeah. an automatic action for a child, and he's not because he's becoming his father's son. So I, Th- but that's why I say that she didn't get the kids because they don't leave with her at yeah. the end. But but you don't. I mean, that's you, what I'm saying. You might be right. Maybe he does lose them. Right. Just not at that exact moment. Right. I'm sure there's people that seen Godfather Three screaming at Probably, it right now. Yeah. But without Godfather Three, uh, my my intuition was that this yeah, Michael has lost everything because he had finally gotten Connie on his side. And she mm-hmm. was starting to take care of him the way an Italian mother would. 
And but now that he's killed Fredo, that's gonna go away. Oh yeah. His wife he's lost his wife. His son is turning into someone like him, which if he follows that trajectory, he's going to reject his father. And he's not gonna go yeah. along with his plans for him. So like I feel mm-hmm. like he's sowed the seeds of his own demise and lost his, uh, his soul in the process. That oh, last has. scene of him just looking out over Lake Tahoe, yeah. Brutal. That's uh, that's a crushing scene, and it's and it's you know it's the combination of that scene and the scene right before it with his family, uh, before this whole thing started, um, kind of right before Michael, right after Michael came back from the military, before Godfather One, uh, that scene is so brilliantly constructed because it shows. It, it starts out with I think Michael and Tom, like the brothers. Did you say World War One? No, sorry, World War. Okay, II. I just yes. want to make sure. Y- uh. Yes, uh, World War Two. So. It starts out with the brothers at the table, I think. I don't yeah. think it's just Michael at the table, but it starts out with the three brothers at the table, Tom, Sonny, and Michael. And Fredo. He's uh, there, too. It, it, Fredo walks in. Fredo walks in. That's why I'm not sure, like... Does he? Because I thought he was there, and, and Tessio walks in with the cake. So a bunch of people walk in. Okay. Yeah, okay. a bunch of people walk in and out, and I think Fredo was one that walked in. I'm not certain. But he's definitely certainly... sitting there when Michael drops the bomb that he's he's going to fight for his country. Yes, for sure. Um, but at the end of that scene, which is the more important part, one by one, you see his family walk out on him. Sure. And by the end of that scene, everyone has left that table except Michael, who is left to just contemplate his actions and his future. And then you can see that transform into Michael contemplating how all of that got so fucked up. Yeah, he was trying to run and away from all that's why this. it's such a poignant moment. And also the fact that, again, Fredo was the only one <laughs> to try to look at it from his point of view uh-huh. and and see the thing that he was trying to do and, and just be happy for him. Like, congratulations, Mike. Now, that you could say yeah. that's because Fredo's an idiot. But also I think if we're trying to see that this is Michael meditating over his past, that's got to eat at him. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there there is nothing about killing Fredo that Michael actually wanted to do, I think. Um, it's just circumstances brought him to that. Uh, wh- what do you... So what do you think Tom Hagen's doing at the end of this film? I don't... Because he's not shown again after he talks with Frankie. Uh, I don't know what Tom does because... I feel like he might have abandoned Michael too, but I don't know why, and I don't know. I don't know how you abandoned Michael in that position without, yeah. you know, getting out alive. I, I don't know because clearly Michael's hurt him, and and it's like you go from how much love and respect they had for each other, and and you can see how Tom has been wounded by Michael like rejecting him because he's like, you know, Mike, if you need anything, I'm I'm right out here. And then when Michael sits in that and explains the situation, you see how much kind of love and mutual respect is there. But by yeah. the end of the movie, that's that's gone. Yeah, no, he's paranoid, and he's considering the fact that and like, Tom might be against him. And, and, and Tom's saying, like, you don't... Do you have to kill everyone? Like, why are you got this hard-on for Hyman Roth? Which is he's gonna be dead a in very nice parallel anyway. structure between Vito's need for revenge against his old... Don, was it Andolini? No, that was his, that was his name before he yeah, used Corleone. Yeah. But this old mobster to kill his father, he's yeah. on death's door. His eyes are roomy. <laughs> he might be a little senile. He's hard of hearing. If he waits three months, the guy's going to die. Yeah. But he needed to send him out on his terms. And Michael's same need is, you know, I don't know what he lost. I mean, obviously he lost Rocco, one of his one of his top men in, in the assassination attempt. Mm. Uh, you got to wonder, like, how that will come back on him politically. Um 
But I, I just, you know, Hyman Roth, it would have been, I think the other thing is short-sighted is that it would have been a worse fate for him to have to continually, he's basically Tom Hanks in the terminal. He's a man without a country. Okay, <laughs> sure. Uh, that that he's going to live out his life in in indignity mm-hmm. and uh, with no with no home, no respect, no fortunes. You kill him in a blaze of glory. I think Hyman would prefer that. I I just don't get Michael's need for revenge. His mm-hmm. father had the same one; that didn't make any rational sense. Yet they turned out so differently. But we've already talked yeah. about all that. No, too, so. I, yeah, we we have. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm struggling to think of anything else that just screams talk about me. Uh, um, how about the scene of uh, Michael approaching Fredo, where it's a tracking shot like in a U shape, where you follow Michael going through the crowd and everyone's reaction. So he finally approaches Fredo. Oh, with the New Year's celebration? No, when his mother's dead at the death of his funeral. Um, I don't remember that. So, so he's at his mom's funeral, and Fredo's yeah, asked yeah. to talk to him, and Fredo's sitting in a chair, and he's broken down. Michael, uh, yeah. his, his sister comes and, and, and treats on Fredo's behalf. Michael comes out, walks around, and then grabs uh, Fredo's head, and Fredo hugs him at his waist. Hmm. And I felt like that approach okay. gave this really epic weight, but then you see Michael lock eyes with Al Neary. <laughs> and I'm like, damn. Boat scene. So yep. what, there's a question. Yeah, yeah. Vito had Luca Brasi. Michael, in the book, they make it very explicit that Al Neri was his Luca Brasi, one that was un- unquestionably loyal. Sure. Um, but they're too different. Like, Luca Brasi was power and muscle, very little brain. Al yeah, Neri yeah. seemed like the opposite. He was much more cunning and, and you know, he, he had a lot more smarts going on to him. Mm-hmm. Who's which? Which which would you take? Would you take Luca Brazzi? Would you take Al Neri? If hmm. you if you needed a, an enforcer. Well, I think I might take Al Neri. I I think I mean I don't know. I don't know which one I take. I know why Michael takes the one he does. Well, because Luca uh, Brazzi's dead. Granted. <laughs> Granted, but why he doesn't just go for another Luca Brazzi, why he kind of switches it up. I feel like Michael is a more calculating person himself. Than, uh, than Vito? In some ways, yeah. Uh. I mean, look at the look at the fucking plot of this film, man. Sure, sure. It's, it's definitely more dense than the other one. Um, and I feel like that's reflected in the people he chooses to have around him. Uh, so maybe that's why he's got Al Neri instead of a Luca Brazzi equivalent. Uh, but it, it was also super confusing to me that during his time in Cuba, he's got some dude in a black hat. Like, who the fuck is this enforcer guy? And why doesn't he have Al Neri with him? And we talked a little bit about this, but I want to get it on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, because that was a question I had, too. Is like, if you're going down there and you needed to make sure this assassination goes off without a hit, yeah. what do you take this this second-run Frankenstein over Al Neri? And I realized <laughs> yeah. that from Michael's Standpoint, Ernest Borgnine down there, <laughs> skinny, more Frankenstein like Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> if 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 I'm Michael, protecting my family is the most important thing. I want Al Neri and Tom Hagen guarding my family, and I'll take the B team down for the assassination. They're still okay. pretty good, okay? Yeah, but I want fucking Al Neri around my family to making sure nothing bad goes down. Yeah, especially right after that attempt on their lives. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. makes a lot of sense. Uh, okay. 
I'm satisfied uh, with that. What about Tom? So here's the thing that is maybe a little shed a light about what goes on with, with Tom. Okay. The scene where he goes and talks to Frankie happens great after scene. great scene, but it happens after he has the fallout with Michael. Yeah. But Tom is carrying Michael's weight like he is a five gallon bucket. He's mm-hmm. carrying his water like it's a five gallon bucket. Um, that to me says that Tom forgives him for everything, and he's still Michael's man. Tom forgives Frank. No, Michael. I don't think Tom's mad at Frank, and I don't think Frank's mad at Michael. I feel like everybody understands what needs to happen now. Sure, like this Including was all mis- Frank himself. Yeah. This was all a misunderstanding. But you're never getting out of jail. You don't even want this deal. I, Michael can't allow this to go unpunished. Yeah, and they make a good point of Frankie saying, "Hey, I got my own family back." Like a long time ago in this film, yeah, and that all comes back around to him saying, "Just protect my, keep my family safe, care for them, and I will take myself out because right. that's where this is going anyway. I'm just going to secure secure a final ending for my family." But it's funny because it was almost like Tom had more of his uh, of uh, like Tom got all of, of, of Vito's warmth. Yeah, and Michael got, but then again, Tom has a mistress. Do you think Michael? I don't ever think Vito had a mistress. Like, if he was going to, he's going to do it as a young man, and he was, like, saying to even his buddies yeah. when they're on a night at the town, like, I got my wife and kids, and that's all for me. Yeah, I think you're right. He's probably the only fucking godfather in history, real <laughs> or fictional, that hasn't had mistresses on the side, but yeah. I don't think Vito had mistresses. No, I think you're right. And you look at Mrs. Godfather, and you're like, why would you have a mistress? That is a hell of a woman. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, it was funny, because Coppola is talking about her in the in the commentary, and he's like, I was looking for a woman who was beautiful, and yet could go in the kitchen and cook up a pasta sauce. Because that's what Italian women were at the time, you know? So sure. I think they found one in her. Nah, she, she's She looks awesome. a lot like that, yeah. She's fucking a, a great character with so... Does so much with so little. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do we want to talk about the final thing, which is how these two movies compare with each other? Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. Or do you have more to talk about? We already talked about Pentangelo uh, and it, did he work better than Clemenza? Mm-hmm. Like if they brought... Yep. Imagine if they got the Clemenza guy to come back and he did everything that Frankie had to do. It, I almost feel like it worked better because there was that mm-hmm. that scene where he goes back to Vito's old home and Frankie's there and he has that speech about, I'm glad this never went to strangers. First, when, it, Somehow the fact that Clemenza, there was a a death and the transition somehow made it a little bit more poignant. And I don't know that that guy as great as he was. Yeah. I don't know that this would have worked as well. Like, I mean, I can see him, like I can see Clemenza doing the courtroom scene and like, you know, and I can see him being the kind of like the drunk guy at the party, but the scene of him and Tom Hagen make coming up with that understanding in the the the, the prison run behind all the yeah. fencing. I don't know that he does as good a job at that. The scene where he co- Mike Mike comes to him and says, "I need your help to get revenge on my enemies." I don't know that he carries that as well. Yeah, the I mean the trouble is now that I've seen so much of Frankie and I've seen so little of Clemenza. Like he doesn't do a ton in the first movie. But Clemenza, Clemenza had the scene in the basement where he was the t- gun, yeah. Then that was really Teaching good Michael too. That was fantastic, yeah. But it was it was kind of just a short, short yeah. little scene, and I don't I don't know how he would do in a, a longer form thing. I've never seen him in any other films either. Um, but I feel like I'm totally satisfied with Frankie. Whether whether 
Clemenza would have been better or not. I am satisfied with Frankie, and I think that courtroom scene is one of the scenes that really just makes me say, yeah, Frankie's a great character. Frankie like, Five Angels. That's another scene I wanted to talk about okay, a little bit. Okay, sure. Uh, Michael brings Frankie's brother in from Sicily. Uh-huh. Uh, and he just walks him into the courtroom yep. as Frankie's about to testify against him. And Frankie totally changes his mind mm-hmm. on seeing that. Why do you think he changes his mind, and what do you think Michael's actual goals were with bringing him in there, aside from, like, like why do you think Michael thought this would work? Well, it's weird because I'm the older brother. I'm not the younger brother. So I don't know how that relationship works. I'm too, yeah. But the way I think we're supposed to understand is this is this is this is Frankie's older brother who's still he's from the old country and he is old time Sicilian mafia. Mm-hmm. And bringing him into that courtroom and having him look like what the fuck are you doing? You're my blood, and you're about to testify against your Don in front of this federal... What the <laughs> fuck? Just him being there staring at... Now, I think the guy that they had to okay. play him... Yeah, yeah. He's a little dopey. He's doughy, dopey, and it doesn't help <laughs> that he's dressed in that weird-ass Sicilian... All right, yeah. Like, like you know, we talked about, like, the Sicilian gangsters look like they're just out having a duck hunt. He looks like a, a Mr. Magoo type of character to me. They like needed a, somebody, they needed a Clemenza not wearing... Somebody who's got a little Lederhosen weight and to stuff. his presence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> not literal weight. Yeah, yeah, but, but and the way he acted was almost like, I, I, the first time I saw the movie, I thought that it was implied that he was going to kill his brother. That's the thing. I'm wondering if Michael isn't doing this for a couple of reasons. I don't buy it. Not after what not after what uh uh Tom says and uh Michael say about the guy. And and, and I know Tom makes it come across, but like And Frankie himself said that's my old brother, he's old school. If he come to America, he'd have his own family. You know, he'd be one of the leaders yeah, of the five. I'm just families. not sure because uh, the shit going through Michael's head in this movie is bad news. I, mean, I would he believe thinks Tom is against him. He thinks Frankie's against him. Fredo's against him. Like he thinks everyone is against him. And I could see like Tom not being in on the loop that Michael might have killed this guy. I don't think, and this I, was a threat. Trust me, I don't think that Michael would not kill the man if he thought it was to his advantage. I just don't think okay. that that's what really was going on. I think All Michael. Right. Okay, Michael thought. That if he brought his brother here to give it's a reminder, to shame him, not to threaten him. Yeah, it was like this is you're not even a, like if you go through this, you're not even a man anymore. Yeah, and that means a lot to these guys. Yeah, I mean, it might have even just been a reminder. Hey, you have a family, and if you do this, well, there they're, is they're they're not going to be killed, but they're not going to be taken care of. Right. I guess it does. And so set Tom up going that. to him after that and saying, "This is what we want to do. We'll take care of your family." That might be supported. I don't know. I, I didn't think of that before, but just now it's hitting me. So we've teased people long enough. Yep. Is the Godfather 2, the Empire Strikes Back? Is it the Return of the Jedi? Is it the Phantom Menace? Mm-hmm. Where, what do you think? After was This is like your third time seeing this movie? Yeah, something like that. Uh, You've seen it four times total now? Because you watched it twice. Yeah, I watched the commentary. Although the commentary, I was just mostly listening. Sure. Um, and then when he said something super interesting about a scene, I'd look up and... See what was going on. Um, yeah, I, I've i seen it a few times now. This is the only time that I've really sat down and watched watched it. Uh, and I would say it is not quite as good as Godfather 1. Hmm. I think the first Godfather, it just, I mean, it's such just a neat 
well-told story. Did not need a sequel. Up. Did not need a sequel. Didn't need a sequel. And that's that's the thing. Like Coppola had no intention of making a sequel, and Paramount came to him, and they were so hot to do it because of how successful Godfather, uh, the original was, that he finally basically Coppola's like like whoa 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 you're saying that that Paramount's going to guarantee our return. <laughs> he, he went sunny much, on it. Yeah, no, uh, they guaranteed that they would not get in his way. For sure. And you can tell. Yeah. He made a three and a half hour, probably wildly expensive <laughs> with the... I imagine so. Double cast, mm-hmm. quadruple locations. Bringing back people who were already super famous. I mean, Robert De Niro at the time was a really controversial choice because he was famous as a contemporary actor. So and he had so Taxi Driver. He had... Raging Bull. I mean, Rage, he's, yeah. He's, he was, even as Coppola says, a very famous at the time. And... The studio said, no way are we letting you do Robert De Niro. And, of course, Robert De Niro's in the film at the end. Uh, It was weird. I I got it from the commentaries that Coppola wanted uh, Martin Scorsese to direct this. Oh, maybe so. That's the one battle I guess he lost. Hmm. The studio's like, no fucking way. We want you to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, obviously, so when I heard that, and he never really got back to it, I'm like, well, shit, maybe Martin Scorsese did direct this. This is like a... Wasn't it Lawrence Kasdan that directed uh, Empire Strikes Back? But unless you're a real star, a movie nerd or Star Wars nerd, you don't know that. You assume uh, George Lucas directed it all. Sure, yeah, George Lucas directed the first one. That's it. Yeah, and uh, all of the prequels. Well, okay. Yeah, you count those uh, as Star Wars movies. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know because I, I feel like it didn't need to be made. Irvin Kershner, what the fuck? Irvin I got Kirshner, my producer yeah. and director confused. Uh, the, the movie didn't need to be made. Uh, but once it was made, I thought it was great, of course. Um, and also... So is it Return of the Jedi to A New Hope? Would you say that, that it's... it's If New Hope were better, if if New Hope was Empire Strikes <laughs> yeah, Back yeah, yeah. Okay. level of quality, and, and is you it, increase so, the quality of Return of the Jedi appropriately... Okay, so, so is, is, yes. is this <laughs> the New Hope... To oh my God. the Godfather's Empire, we need to go to another franchise to make this comparison. Oh fuck off! <laughs> Seriously, is, it, is this a new? Is this like a New Hope quality compared to Godfather's Empire Strikes Back? Uh, easily, yeah. Okay, even maybe a little bit better. Yeah, like there yeah, is yeah. no real analog. Yeah, I'm tempted to say that they're equal, and I thought that that's what I was going to come up with because I can't say that it's better. Yeah, it's darker. It's more complex. It's more ambitious. Oh yeah. It's not as it's not as entertaining in a way like like Godfather's complex, but it's effortless. You just keep you just keep watching it and you'll get it. Yeah. The Godfather 2 is not that way. You have to work at it and watch it multiple times before you know confidently what the hell's going on. Even then there's like some things I know I know, and there's a lot of things I think I know. And I need to watch it a couple more times. But Mm-hmm. I fucked up again, and I watched Godfather, Godfather 2 back-to-back, and I keep coming back to Godfather in some way that I can't quite put my finger on it. The watchability, mm-hmm. the fact that it's the first, it's the the groundbreaking thing, It's it feels better. Not like heads and shoulders. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. But, like... You know, if if someone's not seen The Godfather, I'd be offended, and I'd probably hound them as a friend until they watch it. <laughs> I don't really care. I think they should watch The Godfather too, but I wouldn't uh-huh. be scandalized if they didn't see it. Hmm. You know, if someone says they saw The Godfather, then I, the one thing I was blown away is how many people are indifferent to The Godfather. A lot of our fans were like, you know, uh, 
peoples whose I know who are intelligent and whose opinions I value are like, meh, it was boring. Or Brando is a wow. scenery chewer. And I just, I just, I'm not going to call you a fool because I know that that's not the case. But man, I scenery chewer. And I know it's all subjective, but Jesus Christ, I can't, I can't put myself in that mindset. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I don't. I can even Ooh. see where they're going because he is. He's he's packing his cheeks full of cotton. But he but he speaks so little. I mean, the whole philosophy of knowing when to speak and when to listen is a Vito Corleone thing. It's like that is him during the movies. He doesn't he doesn't swing from the chandeliers. He's not screaming at people like Al Pacino is at Kate. He's but even then, that only works because Pacino is so reserved through everything. Yeah, like, it absolutely. Gives, in this movie, the Certainly. same way. Like his the abortion scene works because he is so restrained. Yes. The uh, when he goes to Frankie and he's like, "Did you hear about what happened in my house? In my house? Yeah, where my children sleep, where my are. wife sleeps, and my children play with their toys. It's just yeah, it works because he is so willing to rein it in throughout the rest of the movie. But that's what I mean. Like you want to, I mean, to me, getting extremely animated and extremely loud and stuff. That's scenery chewing. What. What Marlon Brando is doing in the first one is such a level, even performance from from that guy. It's, yeah, it's, that despite transforming himself into a kind of quirky character, yeah. it's it's not scenery chewing. It's like, just, is, he, is he chewing the scenery when he come, when Michael comes to him and tells him, "I'm with you, Pop," in the hospital, and he just has tears brimming in his eyes? Is he chewing the scenery when yeah. he finds Tom Hagen in his house and says? What are you not? What What am I the last person in this house to know? You know, you've had your drink. Yeah. You know, tell your tell your Don tell your Don what's what's troubling you. Consequently, I mean, yeah, I can't. There's so see many it. things, and like, is he chewing the scenery in the meeting with the five families? No, no, he's he's a level headed, no. even character. He's weaving a fucking spell, in my opinion. Yeah, me too. And you know, the naysayers are not here to defend themselves, so I don't no. want to get on them too much. Right, but, right, right. But from my perspective, yeah, I don't, I don't see him chewing scenery. And yeah. if anything, I could see the the slight occasions where Al Pacino gets his outburst as scenery chewing, if you want to call it that. But it works. It's appropriate. Because... The scenery is there to be devoured. <laughs> sure, that's also true. Uh, but but it works, like you said, because he's so reserved in other times, and it punctuates his performance in right. a way. That doesn't feel like scenery chewing to me. He's not chewing uh, the unlike, scenery. He's chewing the buffet. They let it. They they gave. <laughs> there's a Las Vegas style buffet set in the scene sure. with all these great it's a, actors. It's like going to Willy Wonka's factory. You can't blame me for chewing the scenery. Yeah, yeah. It's, you've designed it to be delicious. Yes, uh, but I, I feel like the later Al Pacino, the the version of Al Pacino that Al Pacino has become, is a scenery chewer, whereas this version is not. Now he's a parody of himself. Yeah, like it's sad. <laughs> It's sad to see guys like and Harrison Ford is another one. Like you see him in goddamn Ender's Game, and he's so terrible. And he's been terrible in so many things for so long. You know, I liked him in Forty Two. That uh, Jackie Robinson. I haven't seen that one. Film, man, that's good. But it's like it's like, and every once in a while they'll get material that engages them and challenges them. But like Mm -hmm. they just are content to coast, and it's sad to see. Um, and it seems like all yeah. the great actors kind of do that. I'm trying to think of one that, like, Daniel Day-Lewis maybe is a guy that's still... And maybe he's just not old enough, but there's a guy that rolls uh, up his sleeves, clocks in, and works at every fucking movie. Fucking Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Like, okay. Those guys, holy shit. They yep. stayed true to 
being great actors for their entire lives. I mean, Robert Robert Redford's life is not over yet. Paul Newman's is. uh, And he was fantastic till the day he died. Sure. Uh, His catalog just blows me away. But yeah, I I don't know. I don't like this as much as Godfather 1. Um, And and it's because of some of the plot, the plot contrivances, like I said, with, you know, it's not as much fun. Frankie trying to be killed and Michael Corleone says hello. It's a much more intellectual, cerebral experience where the Godfather's got more heart. And it's a more... Yeah, and that's reflective of the characters that it's about, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this one's... That, that's the interesting thing is Coppola says he didn't... When they came to him and said, let's do Godfather 2, you know, he resisted it. But he had this idea for a film, not, not the Godfather. He was making something else where you have these crossing arcs. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Of yeah. of father and son, one uh, both both one rising to power, one falling out of power. Um or, you know, Michael doesn't fall out of power, but he loses a lot in the process. He definitely and, loses. And that himself. was converted to a Godfather film. Sure. Somewhere along the way. Retrofitted. So, that makes yeah. sense. Uh and then he said he wanted to do one where it's like a good man becoming bad and a bad man becoming good and those kind of crossing. I don't know if he ever did that after that commentary, but I don't know. Like I said, I I'd like can't to find out. I'm really, really looking forward to seeing godfather 3 now yeah yeah although we'll in that a weird way that like i'm full expecting to be kicked in the nuts <laughs> because it's sure. like as universal as the opinion that i kind of disagree with i guess that godfather 2 is better than the godfather mm-hmm. it's that kind of universal opinion that the godfather 3 is just a travesty yeah i in it seems hard to believe that Coppola would do something like that. It would make something that <laughs> wrongheaded and bullshitty. Yeah. Well, we'll find out eventually. I think we're going to... Our plan is to watch three at some point and do a podcast about it. Yeah. But I don't know when. Yeah. Uh, we'll wait for the 40th anniversary. So 2030, no, see, we're going to have... <laughs> I want to watch, watch the first and do an instant take because, again, I don't know... You don't get a chance to see a movie like that for the first time and get someone's instant reaction to it. Yeah, and then like yeah, if we want to do next Christmas a kind of this version of the podcast where we like really go into it, mm-hmm. I would. But you know, whatever. I guess you have a okay. vote in this this uh, democracy too. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it! Uh, uh, all right, well that's it. I think yeah. Uh, Al Neary wants to take a fishing, Jim. No, no, I'm not going. <laughs> not I'm gonna boat. be. I'm gonna be Anthony. I'm gonna head out to yeah. Reno or wherever they're going. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> Uh well, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, this is one of the most enjoyable series of podcasts we've done. Yeah, I think so. Short and sweet, not too short actually, but definitely sweet. And uh, look, for, whenever we get Godfather three in, I'm looking forward to it because yep. it'll be either a shit show or I might be surprised how much I like it. Maybe, maybe. All right, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. Merry Christmas. Thank you.